Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Andrew Lukosovic, you fellow first-gen hunter. Don't you like that term better than, uh, um, what was the, the the one that sounds like a disease? The adult Uh, adult onset hunter? (laughs) Yeah. Sick guy's got something wrong with him, man. Don't touch him. He's got got adult onset hunter disease. Uh, That's what we're talking about tonight. And I got Andrew here from Endure Hunt, right? Is that that correct? Endure Hunt. Yep. Yep. I, I had this little panic moment there, like, oh no, I forgot the name of his uh, his channel. But no, I remembered it. it's good. It's great. He has a lot of great things to say on his show, and we're going to talk about his show before this one is over. But Andrew is a fellow first-gen hunter. He is a fellow that is suffering from the same disease I am, adult-onset hunting. And uh, we're going to talk about the ins and outs of that. But he's had a lot of success, too. If you follow him on Instagram, you can see some of those stories, some of those those memories that are told in pictures and videos. And he talks about them on his podcast, of course. Um, so, so we're going to get into that, but we all start somewhere, man. What, you know, what was your first hunt? Like, like the very first one and just kind of lay out how, how it went down for us. Man, my first hunt is a, uh, it's a story. That's for sure. So, um, before before I actually dive in, I want to say I think it could be a disease because let me tell you, <laughs> I think can't about it all it. the time. <laughs> yeah, I can't shake it. I want to do it all the time. I want to hunt all of the things, you know. Yeah. Um. But my first hunt was a unique one. Uh, I had a buddy. I was I was in the Marines at the time, and I was actually deployed overseas. And my okay. my buddy, uh, my buddy, his uh, now wife got him a. Uh, general deer elk combination tag and uh through an outfitter basically so it was a non-guide it was a non-guided tag but in montana and there's a few other states like that you get a better draw odds if you go through because you can buy like an extra point Mm. and she surprised him with it for their anniversary and he didn't want to go alone so he sends me an email because it's about the only communication i could get and he says, hey, you're the only person that I trust to go out to Montana and do a hunt in November with me. Do you have any interest in doing that? And uh, I said, okay, sure, <laughs> let's do it. And truth be told, you know, I've been thinking about it for a long time and it's, it was tough to get into it. And I was looking for an excuse. So I actually did the Hunter's Ed online while I was deployed when I wasn't working, worked through everything with the outfitter, came back home. And then a few months later, I was in Montana, uh, <laughs> Southwest Montana, wow. General Tag, uh, very first hunt, and uh, we went out. It was it was a rough one. Neither of us had a clue what we were doing. Uh, looking back on that hunt, and I actually have an opportunity to have some redemption this year because I'm going back to Montana. But looking back on how we did things, I'm amazed we found animals at all. To be completely honest, but it was uh, five days in southwestern Montana. We ended up turning it into a mule deer hunt for all intents and purposes because we couldn't find an elk sure, anywhere. Sure. We we started wanting to do elk. It was a rifle hunt. It was the uh, middle of November, plenty of snow on the ground. And I was I, that was when I got the bug because I had no cell service. 
I was getting physically tested. You know, I had a hard time keeping up on the mountains, mm-hmm. the breathing, the elevation. And it was just amazing to be out there. And I just loved the experience of being in nature and trying to pursue something that was really challenging and testing myself, which is part of the reason I want I, I got into it in the first place and ended up getting into it because of food. And that's one of the things that really get me going down the path. Sure. But yeah, we were out there for five days. The weather got really rough. We got snow every day. We were out there. Uh, we did find some muleys. We never got within what we were comfortable as our, our shooting range. So mm-hmm. we could never get them under 300 yards, which is what we were going for. And uh, we went home and had tag soup. But we, yeah. he and I have gone out west every single year since then. And I've hunted in whatever state I've lived in at the same time. And uh, yeah, that was that is what gave me the hunting bug. That was solidified it for me. Yeah, wow, what a what a way to dive in the deep end there. And November's no joke. You know, I was I was looking at doing a November elk hunt um, in Colorado, which you know that's that's a lower latitude than Montana, and um, but you know places there have higher elevation, of course, which could mean snow just based on that alone, but. But uh, I quickly found out how much of that was just going to be a winter hunt there. It wasn't going to be like what it is here in Iowa in November, which is, yeah, you might see some snow every now and then, but it's, you know, it gets up into the 40s and 50s. And it's like, no, there it's going to be down to the single digits at night. And I was like, man, I am not ready for that. Uh, not on a mountain. Like, I'm, I'm, so I'm going out to the Sandhills of Nebraska this year, and it's going to be weather like that that's a whole different ball of wax. You know, you're not stuck on a mountain and in a blizzard, you know, you can, you can get yourself rescued a lot easier in Nebraska than you can in Colorado. Yeah. No, no joke. It was the high was 15 degrees while we were on that hunt. Wow. And we were no less than an hour from the closest town. So we were, we definitely dove in the deep end for our first our first hunting Man. experience. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. But you know, I'm sure you guys had a lot of confidence in your your training from the military as well for general survival skills and had some had some good gear from that as well. So and how to use it and so forth. So that I'm sure helped a lot as well. But but yeah, that's a I mean that's a crazy that's a crazy hunt to dive in on and you know is there anyone better at eating tag soup than a first gen hunter? You know what I mean? It's, uh, I have, I, that's right. I think I've saved, I don't know that I've thrown any of them away. I think I have all my, my tags that I've eaten through the years still in the bottom of hunting totes and stuff like that. And I don't know why I just, I can't bring myself maybe because it feels so good when they finally come in the mail and stuff like that. But, but, um, you know, I've every year I always buy extra deer tags that I don't end up filling. Um, and, uh, so every year I at least eat a little bit of tag soup and I've hunted in, let's see here. I've hunted in two or three other States. No. Yeah. Three other States. And I have not filled a tag in another state. And so I've, I've, uh, got plenty of tag soup there. It's just part of it. It's part of the learning process. But, you know, where where you start out is having a little bit of success and hopefully you can build on that and build some confidence 
and uh you know we get we can get into that more though so don't don't beat your guys don't i hope you guys didn't beat yourselves up too much over that uh first dose of uh not a chance yeah both of us were like we need to figure out how to come back <laughs> that's right and i that was when i dove into figuring out how to hunt so at the time i lived in new jersey which deservedly has a poor reputation in general but it's mm-hmm. actually a pretty good state to hunt in if you like yeah, to deer so hunt, hunt this the seasons are incredibly generous uh, if you hunt every season and every weapon, you can get five bucks a year, Whoa. basically unlimited does in most of the state. Uh, there, it, it has some issues though. There's no rifle season. It's you either got to do bow, shotgun, or muzzle loader. Mm-hmm. And um, the the regulations, as with most states, are impossible to understand. I've got a good friend of mine who's going through, and he's going through his own first gen hunter experience now because he's using me. I live in Texas and he's trying to learn from me mm-hmm. and he's figuring out the muzzle loader side of things, which, you know, I've been hunting since 2018, still haven't touched a muzzle loader. I really want to, yeah. but, uh, he's now figuring that out and it's, it's tough. It, learning on your own in a new state is incredibly difficult and the regulations are, are hard. I have to thank my stubbornness. I think is pretty much the <laughs> only thing that got me through I was like, I need to figure this out somehow. And yeah. I, I was using the, uh, what's the old analogy? Everything looks like a nail when you're a hammer. And that was kind of right. that was kind of the method I took my first year hunting in New Jersey on my own, <laughs> yep. if I had to describe it. Yep. No, that's good. So did you find some success in New Jersey? Did you tag a deer? I did, yes. So um, Montana was 2018. And 2019, during the rut, I got uh, my first deer. And it, it happened to be a buck. Nice. I don't have him in here, but uh, he's in the next room, and okay. uh, yeah, he's a little, he's a little six point. I hey, got that him was my on... first tag buck was a little little six point. Yeah, hey, yep. he's I'm more proud of that deer than than most of the animals that I've tagged because oh, yeah. that one I worked. I I that season starts. I want to say the end of August is when that season started, and I hunted basically every weekend and as many days after work as I could until November sixteenth. And I tagged him. So it's several wow. months. And uh, at one point, the, just before the the week before the rut kicked off, I went to go in and my, my wife hunts with me. Uh, she nice. is, she joined me as a first gen hunter. Awesome. And, uh, and we, uh, we went out to hunt the week before the rut kicked off, like when we expected it to kick off. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the problems with public land, we went in and someone had actually stolen all of our stuff. So we had three stands out. We had several trail cameras, went in to go hunt, and everything was gone. And uh, yeah, it was rough. She did not want to go out hunting again for a bit because she was uncomfortable because we didn't always sit right next to each other. And she was worried someone might come in. Uh, So we Yeah, that's a good good point. I've never heard someone take that conversation to that point. But that's a good point because when you do know that stuff like that goes down on a piece of public, it makes you feel like you're first of all in a hostile place. Like there's, there's people here who, who have incredibly selfish motivations, which to me, incredibly selfish people are dangerous people. And um, that leads to the second point they're dangerous people. You know, what are they going to do? Are they in here, you know, grabbing a bunch of stuff to go pawn it off so they get their next meth hit? Are they, you know, are they, uh, somebody who's all upset because they're treating this piece of public, like they own it. 
because that's a real thing. Um, I just, I have a really good friend who's, who's, man, he's probably the best, one of the best deer hunters I know. And, um, he just told me a story how one day he, uh, just had time to like get into a piece of public right after work for a, a late muzzleloader season here in Iowa. And he had no idea, uh, because these guys were not wearing their blaze orange like they were supposed to, even though they're archery hunting. If you're archery hunting during one of, one of the muzzleloader seasons, you're still supposed to wear blaze orange, especially on public land. And, uh, so he didn't know they were there. He's like, I'm just going to stay right close to the parking lot here because I don't have time to get like way in there. Sure enough, he crosses paths and he's like, he basically said, if I hadn't had that loaded muzzleloader with me, those guys, they were saying how they're going to, you know, beat him up and, and, you know, attack him right there. And that, that is part of the thing, like where we have to, nobody wants to be a narc, whatever, all that. If you know, something's going down on public land that is not right. You got to speak up about it because um, who knows who it is that's out there. It's and it might not even be another hunter. It might just be some meth head trying to get trying to get some uh, cash for their next hit, you know. And um, it you know it's not like this. I see guys post this on those Facebook groups, you know, like hey, I was out hiking on public today and I found this illegal baiting site. What do I do? Call it in. You know, you never yeah, know what it's warden. <clears throat> that's right. And you guys got that crazy stuff going on down there in the Southwest, you know, where, uh, the cartel are, you know, setting up these huge grow sites out. I think that's more. Oh, Cal- I got a fun story. If you want to hear one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it has nothing to do with a grow site, but a buddy of mine, uh, and I'm, I'm fortunate to have made some friends that own a little bit of land in Texas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, two years ago, um, my friend, he has a, a ranch out right on the border. Like the South border is the Rio Grande river. Wow. And we were, we show up and it was a, like a three day and we were doing like a long weekend hunting trip. Mm-hmm. And he warned my wife and I like, Hey, we've seen in- increase in activity because of people coming in across the border, carry a sidearm, you know, just in mm-hmm. case. And we, we have a good relationship with border patrol, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, we got for the morning hunt on the first day and he forgot his sidearm and there was, there were two illegal immigrants in his hunting blind that were sleeping and it was cold. It was like in the twenties and he opened up his, uh, his blind, went to reach for his sidearm when he saw them and realized he left it in his truck. Oh, and man. yeah, fortunately, neither of them were armed. They weren't dangerous, but, uh, he was not in a good place the rest of the oh, weekend yeah. while we were there. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, that would freak me out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So any of that stuff can go down. So I totally understand why your wife felt that way after your stuff has been taken. You know, it just makes yeah. you not want to be there. It's like it makes you want to write it off. And I almost wonder if that's if that's a uh, a scare tactic. You know what I mean? And uh, that people do to get others to uh back off from public land yes so we we knew that we still wanted to hunt the rut it was next week and where we lived in new jersey there weren't really any sporting goods stores 
You know, I think it's very different depending on where you live in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I live really close to Bass Pro and Cabela's, but some places have local sporting goods stores. In New Jersey back then, the only thing I had within two hours was Dick's Sporting Goods. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't even think they sell hunting equipment anymore, but I went there mm -hmm. and basically bought the cheapest climbing sticks and hang on stands I could <laughs> find because I just needed something. Yeah. So I bought the cheapest gear possible that same day, went back out, set everything up. And then we went in Saturday morning and this was the 16th. And it was about as miserable a day as you could want. It was in the twenties. Wind was swirling like crazy. It was doing a little bit of freezing rain, a little bit of snow. And, you know, my wife, she, she won't listen to this, but she definitely was like, <laughs> can we like not hunt this morning? And I said, it's the rut. I have to hunt. What are you talking about? Yeah. You can stay if you want. And she says, if you're going, I'm going. It's fine. I'm like, okay. So we go out and we get, we always get in, you know, 45 minutes before legal light because we want to get set up. Yep. And, you know, we get set up. It's probably at this point, 20 minutes before legal light. My wife's getting, pulling her gear rope up. And sure enough, she hears something and there's a little buck and he is, uh, she's like, really? I, I have to, I'm holding my bow halfway up the tree and I can't move because he's staring at me <laughs> yep. and she can't even do anything because it's not legal light. So he, uh, in a couple of minutes after her staying there, she keeps pulling it up, whatever. And he walks off before she could have an opportunity to take a shot. And he ends up walking over towards me and, uh, it's probably been 30 minutes after legal light, still miserable out. And he comes in and, you know, I, I had a couple of shots at deer before, but I either got so nervous that I just didn't take the shot or I tried and I ended up shooting like way over their back and yeah. I realized I probably shouldn't have taken that shot. But this time I somehow managed to pull my bow back and muster up the courage to aim and breathe and took the shot. I heard the hit and he, I, I honestly, I blacked out. I, I don't yeah. really remember anything. I remember taking the shot and then hearing you know running through the woods and i don't know why i catastrophized a little bit and immediately was like oh no that was a bad shot i definitely injured this deer i shouldn't have taken that shot and meanwhile my wife is like i'm pretty sure i heard him fall and i said no we're gonna wait we're gonna give it we're gonna give it 30 minutes 45 minutes good good, calm good down and uh we wait i call my buddy i'm half freaking out the guy the yeah. same guy I went to montana with and then we're like all right let's go try this I use those nocturnal knocks. So fun fact for me, I'm colorblind okay. and uh, hunting with my wife has helped me on a couple of occasions when I made yeah, it to blood yeah. trail because I can see it if it's a nice pool of blood, but if it's just a couple of drops here and there, I'm in trouble. Yeah. So we go in and find the arrow covered in good blood bubbles. I'm like, okay, good. I know I hit at least a lung Yeah. and a uh, nice pool of blood right there. And he maybe ran 50 yards. It, he was, dead as a doornail and wow. i i was ecstatic i was so excited and then the moment hits where you're like oh no i have no idea how to gut a deer i've seen <laughs> it a million times on youtube but now yes. i have to actually do this <laughs> yeah um but yeah i figured it out with her there and it was awesome dragged it back to the truck first and only animal i've ever dragged everything's been quartered up since and uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It was a hard season for me to get that first year, but yeah. uh, I'm still I think I'm still the most proud of that one over everything that I've taken. Well, yeah, that was that was a uh, true moment of triumph. I mean, you're hunting public land, you're hunting in uh, you know 
adverse circumstances already. You lost all your gear. You, you, um, are, you know, quick getting a stand up and <laughs> getting ready to hunt. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive that you guys were able to put, put that all together and kudos to your wife for, you know, knowing as a first, first time hunter, what the sound of a buck crashing in the woods is sounds like, you know, and, uh, keeping, keeping your spirits up and helping you find, you know, find the deer. That's awesome, man. And, uh, you know, I've only gone hunting with my wife a few times. Um, and, and she, you know, she's, I, I shouldn't say she's not interested in it cause she does have some interest in it, but, um, you know, she's not, you know, she, she's not like looking to go, you know what I mean? But I did, um, shoot one buck with her once back in 2020. And, uh, it was a gun season here in Iowa and it was the only deer we saw run through that morning. And, uh, it was a nice old buck and just as far as like my favorite hunt ever, um, that was probably it you know, just because she was there, shared the experience with her. And, uh, you know, just uh, when you're with your favorite person, it just makes it all the better. So, so, uh, I, I got to imagine that was a really special day for you and, Absolutely. and one that was rewarding. Like, you, you know, you probably never dreamed it would be since then though. You've, uh, what other States have you hunted in? Oh man, I've hunted all over the place. Uh, let's see. So first hunt was Montana, then New Jersey, and uh, after New Jersey, Utah on an over-the-counter elk hunt. Uh, moved to Texas then, hunted in Texas, and I have since hunted Wyoming and Arizona. Yeah, wow. I think that's all of them. Yeah, so you've you've definitely uh, gotten to taste the out-of-state life quite a bit. That's pretty cool. Really cool. Yeah. Every Everything is a new, totally new thing, but I think – when you put yourself in those diverse circumstances, that's where the most growth comes from. Um, I did a, uh, a spring bear hunt in uh, northwest Montana um, back in spring of 22. And um, you know, it's all spot and stock. So, you know, all public land and just like the difference in public land in Montana. I, obviously, you know, there's different topography. You know, you have mountains there. But just the vastness of that public land, you know, a big piece of public in Iowa is, you know, 1500 acres <laughs> there, you know, they went, that's like the parking lot, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know is it, Absolutely. They, they, it's just a whole new scale. But I remember saying to, um, uh, my hunt planner, Alex Gruen from East to West Hunts, I, I told him, I was like, man, I feel like I have gained, 10 years of hunting experience by coming out here and doing this in a totally, you know, totally different set of circumstances. And so I think all that experience you've had in in those other States has probably really launched you ahead. And uh, I can, I can see that because of the success that you've had, you've posted, like, you can't just make that up. You know, that, that, that I think, well, we'll get into more of your hunting stories later, but you've tagged multiple animals that are, are very challenging to, 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 that's very challenging to do. And I got to think all those diverse experiences have helped you get that done in a very short amount of time. You know, a lot of first gen hunters can, can really, you know, flounder for a while, you know, just 
it's hard to line it up and get it figured out. But, but, uh, you know, obviously you, you care about it a lot. And so you put a lot of effort into it, but, but I, I really think that all those, those different experiences you've had have probably really helped supercharge your growth. And, uh, that's a good tip for anyone listening in, put yourself in those of your first gen hunter constantly embrace those new species, new places, new, you know, new times of year that you're actually hunting. Um, don't get all settled into the routine and, uh, you'll be rewarded with, with cross training like that. So, man, so, so, uh, before that though, you're in the military, you're, you're in the Marine Corps. How many years were you in the Marines? Just over seven, just over seven years. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, uh, so I'm guessing we're pretty similar. You're probably younger than me by a few years at least. But pretty similar age, you know. We both grew up with the Iraq War and the Afghan, you know, the war in Afghanistan <clears throat> going on, yep. and and uh, I know for the Marines there was a lot of guys deployed to uh, the Persian Gulf to um, uh, try and keep the pirates that were messing with uh, cargo ships and stuff like that under control. I used to work with a guy and his son was in the Marine Corps and that's what he spent most of his, his deployment doing. But, um, I mean, so, so were you, you mentioned you were deployed overseas. Where, where were you deployed? If you don't mind talking about it. Yeah, no, I don't mind at all. So I, my main base was in Kuwait and, uh, I supported two different bases in Iraq. So we kind of bounced around depending on what was going on. I had a, I had a very unique job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the Marines, my, my formal job was called intelligence specialist. Okay. And it's not really a specialist. You, you specialize in intelligence uh, <laughs> because you learn about all the different intelligence disciplines. And then you basically get assigned to a unit and that unit teaches you about whatever specific branch of intelligence you need to know most of my career was doing ground intelligence so if you've ever watched a military movie and they're doing an operation and something goes wrong and they say it was bad intel yeah i was the guy that was creating (laughs) the intel (laughs) that was my normal job that's kind of high pressure (laughs) yeah (laughs) not as high pressure as the guy kicking the door in though that's Uh, true but anyway but anyway uh when i deployed i got attached to a human intelligence team which is a very small niche uh, segment of the military. And uh, essentially their job is to meet with sources on the ground, you know, locals trying to get intelligence. So I deployed as part of Operation Inherent Resolve, which is the anti-ISIS mission. Okay, yeah. And um, I was attached to this team to essentially determine to what extent these sources were lying to us. So I would work with the collectors. We would get firsthand information. I would use that information, use other intelligence disciplines to try and corroborate it and figure out, all right, is this legitimate? Can we use this guy? And if the information is particularly useful, maybe we'll use it in like a targeting package or something like that, or we'll use it for defensive operations. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was the only one in the at least that I'm aware of, the only one for the Marine Corps in the Middle East at the time when I was deployed. So I supported all different units. By the time I was done, Whoa. we had we had teams. Uh, we had two teams in Iraq, one in Afghanistan, and one in Syria. But that mm-hmm. was my last month. So the guy who took over after me was the one that ended up supporting those teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was a very unique job. I got to work with a lot of really great people with a lot of experience, and uh, we 
I know we made a difference when, when I was over there. So I'm very yeah. proud of the work that I got to do. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. You know, I was always so impressed with guys that went into the military at, during that era, you know, I think, I think a lot of people forget what was going on in the world when we were graduating high school. So I graduated high school in 2008 and, you know, I kind of thought about joining the Marine Corps cause I had an older cousin who was, who I really looked up to. Um, and, uh, he was, he was in the Marine Corps and he graduated high school in 01. And so he was already in when everything went crazy with, um, uh, let's see here. Yeah. He, I guess he would have been probably in basic training when uh, September 11th took place because he would have graduated in the spring of 01. That was in September, obviously. And uh, then, so things started to kind of heat up then. But if I remember right, it was it was really the Army that was sent to Afghanistan for the most part. I mean, I'm sure there were some Marine units over there. Mm-hmm. But... Then, um, shortly thereafter, in March of 03, uh, so now he's, you know, he's been out of basic for a couple years. And so it's like, it's just prime time, you know, for him to be deployed over there. And sure enough, he was on that initial invasion. Then he did two more tours in Iraq after that. And so point of all that is, is during that time, if you, if you enlisted, you know, after basically 2001, you knew what you were getting into. And I was always so impressed by that because I, I, I didn't do it for that reason. You know, I didn't want to go to Iraq. I didn't want to go to Afghanistan. And um, the guys that did, the guys that I went to high school with or guys like you who enlisted in the middle of a war, that's an act of, of heroic bravery, in my opinion, you know, so that, that uh, guys like myself – didn't have to go over there and didn't, you know, didn't have to pull out the draft again and, and, and do all that. And we could be free to go and pursue the things that, that we want to do, you know? And I think that that's, that's something that people need to remember is that, that, uh, we were at war for a long time and there were a lot of guys such as yourself who, who still chose to do what you did, knowing that you were going to have to be away from your family and your friends and in harm's way for a very long time. And, uh, so my, you know, I have all the respect in the world for you, man, for, for doing that. And my most sincere thanks for, uh, doing that for, for me and my family and my friends and, and our whole country. Thank you. And it was my honor to serve, you know, this is something that I kind of always wanted to do and there was no question about it. I loved every minute of it. There were mm. obviously times where it's difficult, but uh, I appreciate your appreciation. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's sincere. And, uh, uh, you know, you guys are our true heroes, and, and our world's a better place for it. So you spent some time over there in the Middle East. Um, uh, did you uh, start to, like, did your interest in hunting build, even though you're kind of distracted with being away from, I mean, I've had a guy on here who I can't say what, what, uh, he's still active duty. Um, what, uh, how do we, how do we use it to be, we, we didn't, we used a, we used a, uh, 
uh, an alias, and we we just I think said special forces when we interviewed him. He is a sniper, oh. and um, uh, he uh, um, got some hunting experience. I mean, he he grew up hunting, but he got some additional hunting experience while he was deployed in uh, Africa, and uh, he got to hunt some baboons. And um, I think um, he hunted something else. I can't remember what it was. But uh, did you do you have any like experience, like any opportunities to hunt while you were on deployment or anything? No, it's so funny. I had started thinking about hunting while I was in and I I credit my growing interest to being in the military and Mm. just learning more about self-sufficiency and and things like that. Yeah. But no, because I never openly talked about my interest. It was just something that kind of grew in the background. And it's funny. You, you just reminded me, this is kind of an embarrassing thing, but it's okay. (laughs) Uh, I remember being in, I was I was ignorant in high school and I I remember, and I could probably find it if I wanted to making a Facebook post that was vehemently anti-hunting. I I remember saying, Oh yeah, absolutely. I grew up in a, in a family that was not fond of guns, not interested. It's it's really funny now because uh, unfortunately my father passed away, but my Mm, mom loves deer. Let me tell you, she loves venison. (laughs) That's good. I I remember making a post because someone was talking about hunting in my high school. And I remember making a post that was like, this is so uncivilized. You should just go buy meat from the supermarket. And I look back at who I was back then. I'm like, you're such an idiot. (laughs) Um, But hey, if you don't grow up and look back at the younger version of yourself and think you were dumb, then you're not growing and challenging yourself, I think, anyway. That's right. Yeah. If you you still think like, man, I did that right when I was uh, 17. Yeah, you might want to grow up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, but slowly over time, you know, uh, when you're in the military, you, I traveled a lot, you know, I got to go to a bunch of different States, meet a bunch of different people. Uh, I got to go to a few different countries. I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful for the traveling I got to mm. do the various training, like learning generally about survival, learning how to handle firearms, which is not something I knew before joining the Marines. Mm-hmm. I think it all built up over time and I just got more interested in preparedness, taking care of yourself and learning about, you know, where your food comes from. And I grew some disdain for certain supply chains and how animals are handled and getting into it and being able to supply some food for myself was really interesting to me. And the challenge too, I think all of it kind of built up over time. And I was just looking for, I think I was subconsciously looking for something to trigger it. And then when my buddy invited me out, I'm like, this is it. I'm doing it. There wasn't any second guessing. I didn't ask. Well, she was my girlfriend at the time. So I don't know that I would have necessarily asked her, but she's been, she's my wife now when I was deployed, but I didn't think about asking her for permission. I was just like, no, I'm going to do this. This is, this is happening. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. It makes me think back to, um, and we can talk about this a little bit too. There was a famous quote. I don't remember who it was. I think it might have just been in like, you know, the old field and stream or or outdoor life where it talked about GIs coming back from World War II and there's this huge bump in the the number of hunters. And the quote read something like, you can't put all these young men in a situation where they get to carry a gun every day, experience all these adrenaline rushes, and, um, you know, do all this, you know, have all this excitement and adventure 
and then expect him to like just give that up forever and not have any kind of any kind of uh you know taste for that not that they liked war but the idea of you know you're you're going through really challenging things and you embrace the challenge and you and and so that i think that was in like outdoor life and it, you know obviously it was true there was this huge bump in the number of hunters back here in the states and it sounds like that may have had a similar effect for you but obviously our data shows now that that hasn't that hasn't happened even though we were at war for 20 some years um and i almost wonder this might sound stupid but i almost wonder if video games have and i'm and I'm speaking out above my pay grade here because I am not a video game person, but you know, there's all those different war video games and stuff now, and you can play online against people and you can have all that interaction with people all over the world. I almost wonder if that had existed during, you know, those right after world war two years, if those numbers like people could have gotten it. It's obviously to me, nowhere near as exciting as hunting, but it might be just enough of that fix to like, like maybe dull the appeal of getting into hunting. I mean, why why do you think we didn't have that that bump in hunter numbers coming out of you know coming from veterans coming out of our Middle Eastern wars? I think it's the same reason why we have a lot of struggling veterans getting out of the service in general. It's just mm-hmm. life is difficult, and you know I remember my transition off of active duty that mm-hmm. first year outside of the military was one of the most depressed I probably ever was because mm. you lost your sense of purpose. Mm. And eventually I was able to find a something that gave me some meaning and, and purpose again. But I almost, you know, I think it's a combination of different things. There are some really good veteran groups. I think that we probably just need to either have more programs that reach out to veterans and try and encourage it because I do my best to connect to other veterans and, and encourage them to get out in the woods as well. I think it's, there's nothing like it. And it actually, while you were talking, made me think the camaraderie that I had on deployment is unlike anything, you know, Mm. the brotherhood, the experiences that you, you really can't share any other way. And the closest I've been able to come is sharing a hunting camp, Western hunting camp in particular. Mm. I've never had the traditional deer camp. So I, I don't know what that's like, but I've done quite a few backcountry camps with buddies, and that is the closest I've ever come to experiencing that same level of brotherhood. And I think that if veterans knew that they could have that and what the experience is like and the challenge, I think that we would probably see higher numbers. I don't mm. have the answer, but I think a lot of it is just the information isn't getting to the people that it probably needs to. Mm, that's really interesting and it made me think of something that is different now compared to world war ii wasn't it after world war ii like going into world war ii they still did the old-fashioned like oh your unit is basically like national guard right where your unit is all local guys you know like think back to the the civil war you know it's like you know the the iowa seventh cavalry or something you know it was and then what they started to realize was, well, if you had a certain unit from where everyone comes from the same town and they go through a horrific ambush or, you know, a a really bad battle 
and uh, a whole bunch. There's a huge number of casualties. Well, now after the war, that town is just devastated. You know, they have all these these fatherless children and and widows and 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 no, you know, you know, loss of leadership in the community and all that. And then, of course, coming out of Iowa, uh, the the mother out of Cedar Rapids, who I think had four or five sons in uh, serving during World War II and lost all of them. Um, like in like one, I think it was like in one, uh, like a cup, like at least a couple of them, I think were on a, on a naval ship and that got, you know, attacked and sank and, and, uh, you know, whatever. So maybe pulling that all back, we learned our lesson. Hey, don't do that anymore. Kind of have people from all over the place making up these units. Um, and, uh, I wonder if coming back then from World War II, if you knew everybody, like you had all these fellow uh, veterans from your town that you fought with over in Germany or Japan, and then you came back and uh, you were in the same communities again. Well, yeah, that was a way to like preserve that camaraderie you were talking about was to go hunting. Whereas now, you know, and for good reasons, obviously, um, you know, that's, that, that's, that's gone. Do you think that could be part of it? Maybe. I think it could. And it's, you know, it's one of the unfortunate things and anyone who's listening, that's a veteran will probably understand what I'm saying. You have your best friends when you're in the service. And then Mm. once you're out, they're gone. I mean, I still talk to a few of my buddies that I deployed with, but I I don't know the last time I saw any of them. It's, Mm -hmm. it's tough. You know, Mm -hmm. we all live in different parts of the country and, unless someone gets married, which they already have, or, you know, if there's some other major life event, it's tough to, to see them again. And you yeah. really do lose that sense of camaraderie. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, such an important part of the hunt is sh- having someone to share it with, which is tough when you're a first gen hunter, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you mentioned you have the one buddy from the Marines that you still do uh, a lot of Western hunts with, but on just your uh, day-to-day hunting, is it pretty much, is your wife pretty much your, your one hunting buddy? Yeah, pretty much. And it, it depends. You know, I was, I was dove hunting this weekend, which is oh, something nice. that I started doing. I'm not yeah. very good at it. It's, <laughs> Nobody uh, is. <laughs> Nobody is. Anyone who tells you they're a good dove hunter is lying. It's the number one species for most ammunition spent per bag bagged animal i mean it's nuts you know it's funny i did a podcast oh man i think it was two podcasts ago about social media and how you should not get yourself bent out of shape because of social media and let me tell you yesterday when i saw a bunch of people with truck beds full of (laughs) dove i was like you need to listen to yourself right now because you're not feeling very good <laughs> that's right yeah i always look at that and be like you guys need to be spending more time with your families it's impossible to get that many doves <laughs> in a reasonable amount of time no oh, it's man. it's true there are some guys you know they know where to go and i think that's that's a huge huge part of it you know um yeah. what i've kind of found here at my my uh latitude is like two or three weeks before dove season there's doves everywhere but you know they're a migratory species not all of them migrate every year some are you know some stay here all year long but um 
I kind of wonder if like my latitude when the season opens, they've are like a large percentage of the birds have already, you know, moved further south because, um, you know, I'll go from like, so I work outside all the time. I actually hunt doves where I work, you know, I work out and oh, that's grew, awesome. Yeah. Oh, oh man. So I get all the scouting in that I could, I could ever need. And, you know, I'll be, I'll like come up on a production field and I'll, uh, scatter a hundred, a flock of a hundred doves. And be like, well, I know where I'm going. And then when I go, and I mean, it's not like I'm not hidden or whatever. I'm, I'm tucked in super tall prairie grass wearing you know, wearing camouflage, and we'll have, you know, two threes, you know, twos and threes come swinging by our decoys and stuff like that. But it's like, where is that huge flock of 100 doves? And so I think that's part of it, too, is like if if where you hunt lines up well with that path of migration, then you're just going to have a lot of targets. You know what I mean? And so that's that's just my take on it. But but yeah, don't that's a good point. Don't compare yourself to what's going on with social media. Everyone's in a different place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for that, I've got a friend who has a lease that I'm fortunate enough to have access to. Um, but yeah, in general, I think it's either solo. I do in Texas, if I'm hunting, when I'm hunting deer on public, it's either solo or my wife is with me. Okay. And at West, I go with my buddy, Peter. He's the one I, every year we do something mm, together. That's so cool. And then yeah, it's it's honestly it's really great, especially since we used to live close together. And now that one week, week and a half that we get to hunt together is about mm-hmm. the only time that we actually get to see each other. We usually don't have cell service and we just get to hang out and do what we love doing together for a little over a week usually. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really awesome, man. Well, so so uh it's cool though that you've been able to develop that with your wife and I'm sure that's uh made your relationship even, you know, deeper than when you guys were first first together. Um, which kind of leads me into uh you know, my next question I have for you is how has hunting changed you as a as a person? Because as one thing my wife said about me is once I started hunting I got a lot more interesting. Huh, I don't know that my wife would say I got more interesting, uh, <laughs> more distracted. Yeah, there are definitely times where she's like, "Can you stop watching hunting videos?" I was, you know, <laughs> it's September and I don't have an elk tag in my pocket, so I, I think it was literally yesterday. I had watched maybe three elk videos in a yep. row, and she's like, "Can you please stop? I'm tired of hearing yep. bugles." <laughs> um, now, I mean, I I think that hunting has made me a lot more. Hmm. I don't want to say stubborn because it's not stubborn, but I'm a lot more capable of dealing with things. It's really Mm. helped my patience. I would say, uh, I understand that you have to do really hard work ruling days and no matter how hard you work, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fill a tag. That's okay. You know, enjoying the journey is the most important thing and not measuring success by a punch tag. Obviously Mm. I want meat for the freezer and if antlers come with it, that'd be great too. But I've really grown to val- grown to value the moment that I'm in and appreciate it for what it is. And I think because I started late as a first gen hunter, I appreciate it even more. You know, I had uh, I've, I've talked to some of my friends here in Texas that grew up hunting, and they have said that I put more meaning on it than they do. They sort of took it for granted because it was just normal. Where mm-hmm. every time I'm in the woods. I am very happy to be there and I really appreciate that moment. I think in general, it's made me a more appreciative Mm. person. 
I slow down. I'm at a very different pace than I used to be. I'm from the Northeast and uh, we have a reputation for being fast paced, not wanting to slow down. Hunting has definitely helped me with that. I'm very happy to take my time, see what's going on around me, figure it out and and work hard. I, I think those are some of the things that come to mind when you, when you ask that question. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. You know, two words that popped into my mind there were savor and content, you know, like, I, I don't know that I ever would have thought of it that way until you said it like that, but it's right. It's true. Like you learn to savor the moment, uh, more like just the whole process leading to that, you know? Um, so when, so my hunt to, uh, Montana was partially successful in one way is very successful. Just getting out there and, and experiencing the West. Um, I missed my shot on a really nice chocolate bear. Um, and, but my, uh, uh, hunting buddy, who's his first time as well, he, uh, tagged, uh, um, a bear. And so we brought one bear back, which was awesome. I got to eat a bunch of the meat. And, uh, so like, like through that experience, you know, and, and this is another unique thing when you're a first gen hunter, because by the name alone, it means your family doesn't hunt. They don't, you know, and probably a lot of your friends don't hunt either because if they, if they had been hunting, you probably would have been included in on it. So this is a novel thing to them, right? This is, this is new. And, and I just, you know, I just saw, I saw an example of this yesterday, a guy that uh, used to be a pastor at my church when I was a little kid. He's, he's really big into hunting and he has a son that lives up in Washington state and um, they're out there. I think they must be elk hunting right now because it's September. Um, and uh, somebody commented on there, uh, hope you don't miss him this time. And, and uh, you know, it's fine. You know, the guy, but what it shows is like the reality of, oh, you didn't come home with something. That means uh, this was just a, you know, not that they were trying to rub it in, but, oh, too bad. You know, you didn't get anything out of that trip that you just spent all that time and money on. But what is so hard to communicate to people is, no, no, no. I had to get 5,000 things right to be able to get to the point where I could miss, you know, or to where you, like your mule deer hunt in Montana, you know how hard it was to get to have those deer at 500 yards. You know how many miles we had to hike, you know how much we had to deal with, with the weather and, and this and that. And that's the part, like if you can't savor all that, like you said, then, then it's just not going to be for you. Because that is really what keeps you coming back. And you even mentioned that. Like, as soon as you guys got back from that first time, like, oh, yeah, we're going back. And and uh, that savoring. And then, of course, that leads to, like you said, uh, in a way, contentment. Like, you ever just feel that or, or see it on people when they're just uh, sitting there maybe behind uh, the glass and they're just chilling on a, a slope? And you can just see like they're content, they're at peace and they may not, there may not be a, an animal 10 miles from here, you know, but they are content and yeah, that man, you put that so well, so much better than I did while I'm doing all this rambling, but 
But uh, so, <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so helped you savor things, helped you be a little more content. What else? Uh, you, you mentioned the confidence. How has that confidence impacted your life? Oh, it's, it's helpful for, I mean, anything, I think a lot of the skills and experiences you go through, if you reflect on them, and I, I think that's something that the military taught me, but I've really carried it into my hunting experience is reflecting and doing sort of a, we call them actor action reviews, but thinking about yeah. everything that went into it and really taking time to process it. Uh, I think that that has been extremely beneficial for me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I just went on a rant and totally forgot no. what you asked me. No, no, no. Well, how, how is, how is, you mentioned the confidence that you've gained from, ah, yes. from hunting, how all of that impacted you? Yeah. Confidence is something that I think I struggled with a lot. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. a, a popular kid in high school or anything like that. And I was definitely not a cool kid when I was in the Marines either. Um, I'm not to probably the chagrin of everybody that's listening. I'm not a huge sports guy. I also am not a huge uh, video game person. I have a few things I'm very interested in and they get all of my attention. (laughs) And uh, that's pretty much what it is. But it it has helped me just be more confident in all aspects of life. You know, I can walk around and just stand with my shoulders high. And I know that I'm taking Mm. care of my family. I can deal with difficult situations. And even if I don't know something, especially being a first gen hunter, even if I don't have the answer, I know I can figure it out because I've had to do the hard work already to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's well said. And, and yeah, you know, it does help you just kind of hold your shoulders. higher. I have a friend who does not hunt. He's a coworker of mine. He's becoming one of my, my really, my close, one of my closest friends. So Nicholas, if you're listening to this, um, uh, he said, so he said that like he's hunted growing up, but he's just like, man, not for me. He says, I don't like hunting cause I can't talk. He loves to talk. And, uh, he, uh, is just a very social person. Um, <clears throat> but he said, one thing I really, uh, admire about hunters is how, like you said, how confident they are not. And he's like, it's not an arrogance in most cases. Now, obviously some cases that is, but just like that they're so decisive and so confident and I think it just comes from like when you're on a hunt, we make this five million decisions, right? Do I go this way or that way? Is this track more recent or that one? Is this track from an animal that I'm, you know, interested in, or is it too too young or you know or you know all that stuff that we have to decipher and figure out? I think it leads like that's that's how anything works, right? Working on. Uh, you know, doing mechanical work on, on like, uh, on cars or, or tractors or four wheelers or whatever, the more you make the right decision, the more confident you are to dive in there and, and, uh, you know, fix things. And so I, I think, uh, yeah, it helps you just walk a little taller and feel a little more like, like you are capable of making good decisions. The other thing is you're when you're behind your optic or your sight, if you're bow hunting, you're making a conscious decision to take a shot that mm. will end another being's life. Yeah. And I don't take that lightly whatsoever. No. I yeah. practice shooting all of the time. And I want to know when I pull this trigger, that animal is going to die quickly. It's yeah. going to be hit exactly where I want. And that level of confidence over time. Cause when I started hunting, let me tell you, I did not have that confidence. You know, I practiced mm-hmm. a lot and I was confident in my shooting on targets, but it's different when you're shooting on a live animal. Yeah. I've got enough repetitions now that 
my buck fever is somewhat controllable. I can breathe enough to take yeah. a good shot and I know that I'm comfortable at, at certain distances, but that, that has, that is something that you don't take lightly. And when you've done it enough and you know that when you pull that trigger, it's going to hit where you want, yeah. there's no way you can't be confident in other areas of your life. I mean, that yeah. is the ultimate decision. Yeah, man, that is so true. Yep. Absolutely. You, when you can sit there and, and not succumb to, to the nerves of it. Yeah. That, that just, it becomes more repeatable. And honestly, I think the tags get easier to fill after you, after you uh, break the ice there. Um, our listeners know, um, I have not yet filled an archery tag. Oh, have I come close? Um, uh, many times I, and unfortunately I've wounded several deer, um, uh, through that. And I've been in some cases off by just inches. Um, and, and, uh, you have those depressing blood trails that just dry up or, um, you know, just don't, don't lead to a, a tagged animal. But I know just like when I had my first, um, deer down with a firearm, it got easier after that. Like it, like you can get out of that headspace. So that confidence comes from, and this is another tip for other first gen hunters out there. Put yourself in the position to, to have those successful moments because it builds, you know, there's, there's attrition behind winning, right? <laughs> you know, you ever notice oh, yeah. how like the same, I know you said you're not a sports guy, but people listening in, <laughs> you ever notice how it's the same teams all the time that are in the playoffs, generally speaking, and yeah, it's a huge deal when some underdog sneaks in there and uh, everyone cheers for the underdog and that's probably the one year they're going to be there and then they're going to be back to being the losers again. But those teams that historically, the Yankees, the the Patriots, the you know the Lakers, you can go on and on down the the, the Golden State Warriors. They they always um, they always are in the mix it seems and the same thing is true when you're hunting once you start having those successes they build on it you make you instead of making huge adjustments like oh that didn't work at all i gotta totally reconstruct this nope once you have that success you just make little tweaks and uh you you hone instead of instead of uh develop if that makes sense and uh so get out there and hunt those different seasons. You know, I think that's probably another thing that we haven't really talked about is that you've been willing to try all these different, uh, methods of take. You need to get on the muzzleloader, man. You need to get yourself. I want to so bad. I admittedly, I haven't done it because I, I don't know a single person that has ever, well, I now know one, but he lives in New Jersey and that's 25 hour drive away. <laughs> I don't know any single person or near where I live that has shot a muzzleloader, knows anything about muzzleloaders, but I want to do it so bad because not only does it extend the season here in Texas by an extra two weeks, it opens up states like New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Arizona has some muzzleloader hunts, I think as well. And there are so many other states where I want to go hunt and I could with a muzzleloader. I just haven't been able to convince myself to go over the hump and just suck it up, just buy it and figure it out. I mean, you can literally, at least in Texas, I don't think you can do this everywhere. You can literally buy it online and have it shipped to your house. Oh yeah. I, yep. I'm just, I just can't convince myself to do it yet. Well, I'll tell you what, you get yourself a muzzle loader and uh, give me a call as soon as you get it and I'll walk you through it. I, that's actually my favorite uh, method of take um, is a muzzle loader because it's, do you have kinda, a recommendation. Oh man, it's, I, I will recommend a good one for you. A nice, affordable one. 
it's a shame we didn't have this conversation yesterday because they were all on camel fire for really cheap price yesterday. But next time they're on camel fire, I'll send you the link for the the one you need. And then I'll uh, talk you through the process. And hopefully one of these days you can get over here to Iowa and we can go hunt with them together. But oh, um, that'd be amazing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we can talk some more after the episode here, but, but, um, no, definitely get in with the muzzleloader. It's, it's such a nice, like in between option, you know, it's definitely not, I've had people pitch it like, oh yeah, you know, and I suppose if you get some of these new, really modern muzzleloaders, like, uh, CVA makes one called the Paramount. Um, that one I think is, I think it's a bold action muzzleloader. And then, uh, I think I could be wrong on that. And then traditions came out a couple years ago with, um, they basically, so I'm going to, I know I'm rambling here, but, but, uh, so you know how like UTVs are slowly becoming just trucks again, but yes. in like this weird yes. backwards way, you know, like, yeah. like started out when they stretched that baby out from, a from a two seater to a four seater. Now you can have a six seater. Now you can have power Listen. windows. <laughs> Radio when I was on my elk hunt last year, we, uh, we had a Jeep and it was cold and we were driving everywhere with the heat on. And I was watching all these guys that were in a Jeep sized vehicle going yes. the exact same place as we were, but they didn't have full surround windows or enclosures or heat. I'm like, you guys are like, I wanted to get a UTV, but now <laughs> I could spend, they're already stupid expensive. Oh yeah. I'll just, I'll just buy a Jeep. Why would I bother? Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's crazy. It's like the reverse creation of a truck. And we, we, that's all it, that's, you get a modern one now. It's got a radio in it. It's got air conditioning. It's got heat. It's ridiculous. But anyways, the same traditions has kind of done the same thing with a the muzzleloader. They've like recreated the, uh, the cartridge firing, you know, center fire rifle, uh, with their muzzleloaders by uh they make some uh, i think they call them like and i'm probably wrong on this too but i want to say they call it like a fire stick maybe or something like that and so it's like you kind of like piece all this stuff together in this plastic tube you put your projectile in there you jam your powder in there and then you put a primer cap like in the back of it or something and so you know there's in that case i'm just calling that a rifle man but like if you if you use like you know really primitive you know like go with a flintlock or something or if you even just like a classic inline muzzle loader you know where you're pouring the powder down the barrel you're using a ramrod to shove the projectile down and and then putting your cap in the breech plug you know that i don't know that primitive it's just takes so long to get one shot off you got to be spot on like with archery hunting pretty much, but obviously there's a little more forgiveness there. Like you're going to shoot through a shoulder blade or you're going to, you know, you can take a high shoulder shot. You don't have to be in the lungs or something like that, but yeah, you need to get into muzzleloader hunting, man. That that would be, that'd be sweet. All right. Before uh, we cut this one off, man, uh, we need, uh, so you've tagged an elk, right? Yep. Can you tell us your elk story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I will be I, I'm honest on my podcast and everything that I have. I did use a guide. So I started pl- awesome. applying. Great. I started applying pretty much everywhere out west uh, back in 2020 or so. My first okay. uh, I started on over the counter hunts and then I was like, I need to I need to get in the points game. And I started mm-hmm. slowly building points and I added 
I've added states slowly because for anyone who's started doing it, it is not mm-hmm. cheap to start no, applying and building points. Not. So I'm still super selective, but uh, I, I applied in 2021 for elk in Arizona and I applied again in 2022. For me, my plan has been, all right, cool. Arizona is a state where it takes you no less than five years to draw a tag. I'll keep doing over-the-counter in Utah or Colorado. By that time, you know, I'll have some elk hunting experience under my belt. When the Arizona tag comes, I'll be in good shape. Well, that wasn't the case. I got super lucky. And with one mm. point, I drew a tag that's supposed to take nine years to draw with 100% draws if you ask, if you go on <laughs> Go Hunt. Uh, it was a late rifle hunt. And... Uh, yeah, great unit. It was it was a tough hunt though. So uh, back up. I, I actually another. Sorry, I know we're trying to end it out, but this is a really no, funny no, no, story. no. You take your you you develop the whole story, man. Develop, All right, take your time. There's no rush. My wife knows this now, but she didn't at the time. So she did not know that I was applying for both of us in states and building points. So with Arizona, and I don't know if you've ever applied or if you know how it works. But in Arizona, your credit card basically gets hit before you know like which unit you drew mm-hmm. and whatever. I used the same credit card applying for my wife and myself. So I check my credit card statement and I see $650 and I know that that's an elk tag. Yeah. And I'm like, oh no, am I going to have to tell my wife that she just drew an elk tag? Wait, one of us just drew an elk tag. Holy crap. <laughs> we, we drew an elk tag in Arizona. <laughs> and yeah, so... I did tell her. I was like, hey, honey. Um, and, and she has not gone on a Western hunt with me. She's only ever hunted New Jersey and Texas. She's uh, She likes camping and backpacking, but she does not like being in bear country or anything like sure. that. She's sure. And I, I'm getting her there. She's going to do it. Yep. But it's, we're taking time. So I told her because I wanted to be sure. And Arizona has this, uh, I forget what the, the program is called, but you pay an extra $5, I think, and you can return the tag for whatever reason and get your points mm-hmm. back. So I was like, well, if you drew the tag and you don't want to go on it, you can do that. But two weeks later, we find out it was my tag and I, I got my first choice. So I put in for two different hunts. Wow. One of them, one of them, I had a 6% draw and the other one I had like 23 or something like that. And I drew the one where I had 6%. I couldn't believe it. Wow. But at that point, I started digging in, looking for guides, and I found a guide that matches the hunt with what the hunter's looking for. So I got matched with a guide that was very interested in taking someone who was new to Western hunting and elk hunting and mm-hmm. sort of teaching me about it. So it was this great interactive experience between me and him. Uh, we got there. He showed me his plans, talked me through everything, explained why. But that was one of the hardest Western hunts I've ever gone on. Mm. And partly partly because I built up expectations, you know, in my head, I'm going to Arizona, this hunt for elk, it has a high success. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went in expecting to be bulls everywhere. That was not at all what we experienced. There was a stark weather change two days before the hunt. So all the scouting that the guy did, all the bulls he found, everything moved. We had to relocate. We basically started from scratch. We hunted dark till dark every single day, and we did not see a single bull. We saw one cow, I think, on day three, but it wasn't until day five where we found a bull. And it was it was exactly what we had talked about the day before. And I'm not taking credit because the guide agreed and was interested in this too, but I was looking at the weather change, and uh, it was going to be extremely windy, strong winds. And there were Mm -hmm. a few uh, ridges where I said, you know, 
this is the biggest wind direction change we've had since we hunted. I bet they're going to be bedded along one of these ridges here, one of these fingers. And he said, that's a great idea. We'll do that. And that's exactly where we found them. We mm. were about two, we were about two miles in and so, Arizona, so you thought they'd be like bedded downwind. Is that kind of what your logic was? So the wind was going to go over to the top of the ridge and mm -hmm. it was, I don't remember the directions, but essentially my theory was for my hypothesis was they were going to be bedded about a third of the way from the top of the ridge, which that was not true, but they would be bedded looking down slope with the wind at their back. Mm -hmm. And so we were on the opposite side of the Canyon and it's Arizona. So it's kind of low shrubs, like mm -hmm. uh, lots of cedars. And I don't remember uh, what other we had, what other uh, species of trees and vegetation were out there, but we would basically hike and we would look for openings. And we found a watering hole that had fresh tracks that looked like fresh tracks and they were going straight towards the finger that we were trying to go down. So really mm -hmm. excited. And we're about two miles in. This is our third time stopping and glassing. And we're both looking. And then the guy just says elk. And immediately I just go into it's, it's go time. I yeah. drop my pack, set up the pack. I'm like, where is he? He tells me where it is. It's actually a little bit more than halfway down the slope. And I get on and I think I can get in the prone, but I can't. I'm just so like if I had There's one more inch edge. of height, yeah. one more inch and I could have been in the prone. So I get in this really awkward thing where my backpack is sitting up and I'm, I'm leaning my rifle on my backpack and I get uh, super comfortable and I can see it. I range it. It's at 170 yards. And, uh, I, I shoot, I have, I'm great. I'm lucky enough to be able to shoot out to a thousand yards here in Texas. Wow. So yeah. my, my rifle is zeroed at 200 yards. I'm mm -hmm. super comfortable taking the shot. Yeah. And I have a lot of repetitions, like I said earlier, when we were talking about the confidence thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I am ready. I can't see its antlers. And so as, as the guide should, he says, we need to confirm it's a bull. I am confident it's a bull because there's no way a cow would be doing what this, what this elk is doing. But mm -hmm. we need to see the antlers first. So he says bull, and within like half a second, I take that shot. I mean, it was bedded. Oh, I shot it in its bed. But here's the thing, right? I got set up for a super stable first shot. What I didn't mm -hmm. think about was what happens if you need to take the second shot? And I partly thought of it because I pulled my scope all the way back. I have a 5 to 20. I was at five times because I know the elk are tough. I was worried I'd have to take a second shot. Oh, good So, call. yeah, well, I didn't think about the recoil. <laughs> uh so I, I get blown back and my whole position is screwed up. And my, my guide, like he's giving me the play by play. He says, all right, he's standing up. He's not moving. He's standing up. Meanwhile, I'm trying to get sighted back in and I'm assuming I need to put a second shot on this thing. Yeah. He, and I, I finally get him back in my sights and then he just toppled over. He moved oh, maybe a yard. He fell straight down in his bed, barely moved whatsoever. What a and feeling. And I, oh, it was I have never felt the shakes more with any animal. Even my first buck. That's awesome, I, man. I literally, my hands went numb and oh, I couldn't man. stop shaking. It was unreal. An absolute unreal experience. And then I got the, the glory of doing a pack out with, you know, a heavy pack, several miles, got to do the whole nighttime thing because we started, we went straight across the canyon. We went down and up and uh, got to work. We weren't done. I think I took that shot probably just before noon, like around 1130. And we didn't get back to the truck until maybe 11 p.m. or so. Wow. Yeah, it was it, awesome. It, 
Yeah, looking out for scorpions and rattlesnakes and tarantulas and everything else. That is so awesome. That's what it's all about. That is a that is a great first gen story there. Just to kind of wrap this one up on, uh, man, I I felt like I was there with you. I wish I, I'm hoping someday I can do that. My uh, so one of the sponsors of the show, Alex Groom from East to West Hunts, he did uh, he drew a very hard to draw unit in Arizona back in 2021, September 21. Yep. And, uh, I think he said it took him eight years of applying to get that unit. And, uh, just seeing how he was sending me videos and, and just seeing the animals, you know, just giant elk in such scrubby little country, you know, where the animals are bigger than all the cover, you know, it's just like, it's just so, just like a like a, a fairy tale world there, you know, just from from getting a few video clips from Alex. I can't imagine what it was like to be there and living that out. And and what a great opportunity to use a guide. Use a guide. Alex used a guide. Alex has hunted yeah. all over the all over North America. He's hunted you know, where where Andrew's hunting, he's hunted muskox up in the Arctic Circle. And he used a guide for that. There's just some units that are so special. You you really should unless you're stinking Remy Warren or something you should consider yeah. you should consider you know getting a guide so you can maximize that that opportunity there so man what a great story um, before uh, we end this one up I want to give you a chance to plug your your show and and your social accounts so that uh, people can keep up with Endure Hunt. Yeah, thank you. I have a podcast. That's really the main thing that I do. It's called Endure Hunt. You can find it. It's the same thing on all the social media platforms, uh, mostly Instagram, but you can find the podcast. It's a largely at this point, it's mostly me sharing my own experiences and thoughts. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to share my perspective as I've gone through my experiences as a first gen hunter, but I'm hoping to do more interviews as well with people like yourself and sharing their stories, their expertise, and trying to create a resource that I needed and wanted when I was starting mm. out. And that's kind of my goal. Um, I'm happy to hear from anybody. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be on the show. Oh, and absolutely, man. I, I hope we can connect more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We we need to do another episode in the future where you bring your wife on. You can you guys can both kind of talk about your first gen experiences that you've had. If she if she's game for it, uh, I had a hard time getting my wife to ever come on the podcast, but she came on once. But uh, no, I think uh, I think we we hopefully can even fit in a hunt or two together in the future. I think that'd be that'd be really cool and and uh, chance you know for it, it's impossible to relate to somebody completely if you haven't walked in their shoes not that we're special because we're first gen hunters or something like that you know you i can't i couldn't show up to a somebody's deer camp that they've been doing for 15 years and totally get it and and understand it because their shoes are different than mine and and uh so when we have these interactions between other people that have lived it like like we have it's there's there's a new level of understanding that that you get to enjoy and so these types of interviews they're a lot of fun and it's fun to see other people that are giving hunting a try and then uh, sticking with it for their for their lifetime you know so it's an awesome conversation um please remember those of you listening in this podcast is presented by spartan forge 
Uh, just talked to Bill. He is on uh, the schedule for this Tuesday evening, but I think he is elk hunting right now. So I hope he's I hope he's tagged out in time. But uh, Bill Thompson, uh, the founder of Spartan Forge, another military intelligence man, by the way. Uh, he was with the Army. And uh, he is uh, going to come on, and we'll talk about some updates with Spartan Forge. Um, I was corrected by Alex. I've been telling everybody it's $29.99. I think it's $39.99 for a subscription to Spartan Forge for a year-long subscription. Um, that's still very, very affordable, and you get the whole country when you get that, that uh, subscription there. But you can also just download uh, Spartan Forge for free and just use like the basic mapping functions on there, uh, the landowner information, marking out public land, dropping pins, that kind of stuff you can do for free anywhere in the United States, which is really cool. I think anywhere, I, I at least can in, in Nebraska, because that's where I've been dropping pins like a fiend trying to figure out where to go hunt these uh, mule deer. But um, you can get the free version, but I strongly advise you at least during hunting season, get the paid version, subscribe. You can either do the month by month payment. I think that's like seven ninety nine or eight ninety nine. Um, but, uh, you can do it that way or just go for the whole year shot, support a, a another hunting company, help somebody help you by putting the best product out there. You can find the link to Spartan Forge's website in the show notes, or you can go to the link tree in my Instagram bio and you'll find it there as well. But uh, they are the presenting sponsor. So proud to work with them. So thankful for them. And Bill is as good as it gets in the industry. So definitely, definitely get on board with Spartan Forge if you haven't yet. And then also want to talk again about Alex of East to West Hunts. Alex can help you plan a hunt like what Andrew was talking here. He can help you get set up with a guide. He can help you with the whole point uh, buying and, and tag app uh, process that is complicated and time consuming. Alex will do it all for you. Um, and, uh, even if you need gear, he'll rent you gear or tell you what you should consider buying or tell you if the thing that you really want to buy is something that is worth buying or is going to be junk that ends up in the bottom of your pack the whole time and never used. Alex is that insurance policy, uh, so to speak. He will help make your dream hunt more attainable and more successful. So definitely uh, talk with him. You can do a free consultation. Go to eastwesthunts.com, click on his contact link to set that up, and then tell him that the First Gen Hunter podcast sent you there and you save 10% on uh, any services or uh, rentals or whatever that you book through Alex. He will honor that. Um, or if you're checking out with something, like you're purchasing something online uh, in the promo code area, uh, type in first gen 10, you'll get that 10% off. So talk to Alex on there and uh, tell him that I sent you. And then finally, once you've uh, tagged your trophy, you need to get good quality taxidermy. I just saw someone on marketplace selling their, uh, dad's old, uh, 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 whitetail shoulder mount. And it was spooky looking people. It was cheap taxidermy. Don't do it. You just spent all that money doing your hunt. You just put all that effort into killing your dream animal. Don't water it down with bad taxidermy. Bad taxidermy has no place in your home. So go get it done the right way. Go to Old Barn Taxidermy. That's where I get all of my stuff done. I think I've had two Euro mounts done by them. I've had one deer hide tan by them, and I've had two shoulder mounts done by uh 
old barn taxidermy and they just do phenomenal work. I mean, world-class work over 500 deer come through their shop alone per year. And, uh, Sam, the owner has been, uh, doing taxidermy work for, I believe close to 40 years if I remember right when he, uh, when he was telling me about that. So, uh, tell them if you go there, maybe you're going to bring a Turkey, maybe you're going to bring a mountain lion. They do those or a bear rug or whatever, or just a standard whitetail, tell them that the First Gen Hunter podcast sent you there, and uh, that helps me out. That helps that helps them know that our partnership is a good one, and I want to know that too. So make sure you go to Old Barn Taxidermy. You can find a link for their website in the show notes, and uh, you can go there and uh, get that quality work done at Old Barn Taxidermy. And then finally, if you have not yet left a five-star review, please do so and go and listen to Andrew's podcast, Endure Hunt, E-N-D-U-R Hunt, uh, and leave him a five-star review if uh, you're enjoying what you're hearing, which I'm sure you will. Um, I know I have. And uh, what that does is that helps people find our shows. We want to help other first-gen hunters out there, but we also want have tons of content that's great for veteran hunters or people that are still thinking if they want to hunt at all. Um, make sure you leave that five-star review that helps get us some traction on Apple podcasts and Spotify, especially. So, uh, if you're tuning in on either of those things, please help us out and leave that. And then the best part ever reach out to us, tell us what's up, tell us what you've been doing, uh, with your hunting experiences. We love hearing those stories. That's really the best part of all of this is uh hearing from you guys so please reach out love hearing from you until next time everyone take care and take someone hunting